One of my family friends growing up was a Vietnam War veteran, and every now and then you could get him telling his stories, and when he did, you would just sit back and listen because it was a rare occasion. I remember him once telling me this story. He was over in Vietnam, and his unit came in and found some heavy enemy installations. And so the unit fell back, and they called in an airstrike, and they wanted a B-52 airstrike for this particular location. And so in those days, apparently, they had to get Washington's permission to launch a B-52 airstrike. And so the call had to go into Washington, and instead of getting the all clear, they got back these curt words, fight your own battles. And so the commanding officer got up and said, all right, guys, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to do my best to get you all home. From here on out, anytime we encounter enemy resistance, we're going to fall back. We're going to call in artillery, any kind of airstrike we can get. If we can't get B-52s when we want them, we're going to let everyone else fight for us. And for the rest of their campaign, they continued to do that. They would go in, find enemy resistance, back up, mark the coordinates, and get artillery strikes. It's heartbreaking to think about soldiers being left on the front lines without the air support that they requested. I wonder, though, if some of us also feel that same way about God. Have we ever called on divine aid and felt like heaven's answer was no, fight your own battle? Then having received such an answer, have we gone on to say, you know what? I'm just going to try to live life as safely as possible. Forget accomplishing a mission. Forget accomplishing an objective. I'm going to live it as safely as I can. As we're going to see today, prayer isn't just about trying to live a safe, happy life. Prayer is also about living missionally to accomplish the objective that Christ has set out for us. He calls us to the edge to be courageous. Today, today we're going to start off looking at Jesus and how prayer fueled his life and how the critical moments that advance the kingdom's arrival were always couched with prayer. We're also going to see that the apostles, likewise, devoted themselves to prayer because they believed that was the fuel that advanced the mission. The early church made great movements because they were people of prayer. We're also going to see some objections that we have to prayer, and we're going to encounter them as time goes along today, and we're going to deal with them. But we're going to start off first by looking at Jesus. How did he use prayer? Where was prayer present in his ministry, and how did it advance the mission? As we're going to see, these critical moments in Christ's life always had prayer in the midst of them. So we're going to start off with one we probably don't think of a lot, at the baptism of Christ. This is what marks his ministry, but as Luke records it, it's also a time when Christ is in prayer. So notice this. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, notice that. He's at the baptism and he's also praying. Watch what happens. The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the inaugural moment in Christ's ministry. The words that come from heaven mark him out to be the Davidic son and Isaiah's servant. The Spirit now falls upon him, empowering him for the ministry. 
marking him out. And this began after the baptism while Christ is praying. So he begins in prayer. He conducts his ministry in prayer as well. A few chapters later, the Jesus movement is trending high on the social media of that day, namely word of mouth. And people are beginning to say, whoa, Jesus is really cool. We should go see him. And this is the moment. Success is the moment when we begin to say, ah, do I need, don't need prayer anymore. We start attending to all the duties of success. And do you know what Christ does? He leaves success, a big story, and goes off to pray. Watch this. But, even, but now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. That's a never-ending lineup there. When you start dealing with people's sicknesses and brokenness, there's always more needs. What does Christ do, though? He withdraws. He said, but he would withdraw to desolate places. Why? To pray. So here's Christ, already marking out boundaries, saying prayer is going to be a part of my ministry because he needs to find himself in prayer, talking to the Father. Let's go on. So not only does he not let success drag him away from this life of prayer, he also spends the moments right before critical decisions are made, he spends those moments in prayer. This is before he chooses the 12 disciples. And you can imagine, this is a huge choice. These will be the men that will advance the mission long after he's gone. So you can imagine how some of these conversations might have gone. This one's going to last. What about Peter? Yeah, he's going to fall, but you know what? He's got great potential past the fall. I don't know how the whole conversation went, but look how much time Christ spent in prayer over this important decision. He says this, And these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he names apostles. Now worldly wisdom might tell us it's better to make sure you got good rest before a big decision. Make sure you're peppy enough to sell the decision. Christ spends this time in prayer. Sorting out this decision with the Father. So it's made wisely, made full of the whole Trinity's experience here. Now, the choice together of who would be the twelve that they would pour into and ultimately use then to transform the world. When Christ begins some critical conversations with his disciples, these also come from prayer. So notice this one here. This is Luke chapter 9, 18. It says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, so again, he's often off by himself praying, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? Now this starts a huge conversation that ends with Peter saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. So you can imagine here in this prayer conversation, Jesus might be saying, Are they ready? To identify who I am. Where, where are they sorting this out? And so Jesus brings this question from his prayer life to his disciples, say, you're now ready for this question. Who do you really think I am? Let's show your cards. And Peter's ready to say, you're the Messiah. So even this conversation, which marks a, in the Gospels a really important turn, comes from Christ's prayer and his discussion with the Father. Later, 
talking about the same person, Peter, Simon Peter, Jesus has already anticipated one of the hardships that Peter's going to face. And he says, guess what, Peter? I'm already praying for you to succeed. Look at this. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. What's Christ done? But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter knew, or sorry, Christ knew that Peter was going to have this crisis moment. He's going to deny Christ. And Jesus had already prayed for that moment. He says, Peter, I'm praying for it. And you know what? You're going to rise again, and when you do, strengthen your brothers. And so we see Christ living in these patterns of prayer. And even on the, the night he was betrayed, what's he doing? He's in the garden, and the gospel writers say it was as his custom. Judas knows where to find Jesus because that's, that's what he does. And he's there wrestling with the Father. Is this the way? Is this your will? And he aligns his human and his divine will with the Father to say, yes, I'm on board with this plan to save the world. Christ's life was a life of prayer. And so these critical moments when he chooses disciples, when he's baptized, when he initiates these conversations, they come from a life of prayer. And some of you might be thinking, doesn't Jesus have this internal tu intuition to know what the rest of the Trinity is thinking? Why does he have to pray? Isn't there like a telepathy thing going on? I don't fully understand how this worked. Is it different from what you and I experience as prayer? I, I don't fully know. But here's the question I think is more interesting, and that's this. If Christ spent so much of his time for these critical moments in prayer, why do we think we can live without prayer so much? If the Son of God, in communion with the Father and the Spirit, spent his time in prayer, how do we think we can get away without prayer? It seems like this would be the way of life that his followers would also undertake. And in fact, we see that with the apostles. So if you go over to the book of Acts, we see that they also value prayer, that they learn this lesson from Christ to value and devote themselves to prayer because prayer is the fuel that advances the mission. So here's Acts chapter 2. What's happened here is, again, success has happened. The Christian community is, is increasing. And they have these needs. They have these widows who have genuine needs that need to be dealt with. And here's their decision. They choose to designate a group of people called deacons to care for them. But watch what they want to give themselves to. Here's Acts chapter 6. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God, to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But notice this. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, it might strike some of us as, well, they're just getting out of doing the hard work, right? They will pass off all the tender caring stuff off to the deacons. That sounds great. Here's the deal. They really thought prayer mattered. Enough that they were going to hand this off to somebody else so they could give themselves the two tasks that mattered, prayer and ministry, ministry of the word. They believed prayer was essential to keep the mission moving forward. And they did not want their prayer to be siphoned off with other distractions. Even though it was meaningful to be caring for these widows. It really was but they believed the prayer was an essential part 
of their task. And where do you think they learned that? Hmm, probably Jesus. Yeah, I think they caught that message that if our, if our leader spends his time in prayer, guess what? Part of our task is to look like that. To be people of prayer. We also see later when God wants to redirect these apostles from the Jewish community over to the Gentiles, he's going to use a prayer time to do it again. So here's Acts chapter 10. This is Simon Peter again. It says this, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Sorry, I think I've inserted that. Up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were praying, he fell into a trance. So notice this. He, he goes off to pray, and then it seems like they want to go eat lunch. And so while they're prepping lunch, suddenly God gives them this vision, this trance. And it's the vision of the sheets falling from the sky of unclean animals. And it continues on here. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. These were unclean things. They were not supposed to eat. And God says in the vision, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. He's like, Whoa, wait a minute. I've never eaten that stuff before. Well, this was symbolic of the Gentiles. They were also unclean. And right after Peter has this vision, a Gentile knocks on the door saying, I have a master who wants to talk to you. And Peter makes the connection. So he spent this time initially in prayer. God delivers this vision to him, directs him, and then guess what? Oh, someone who's a Gentile wants to hear about Jesus. God's using this prayer time from Peter to redirect him to a community that needs to know about Jesus. And this brings up something important about prayer. We often think of prayer as like a one-way street. We just kind of upload all of our problems up to God and be like, hey, fix all this stuff. It's off my shoulders. God can take it. But prayer also needs to be a two-way street where there's also reception from God. There should be a listening. As we invite you into praying missionally today, this is an essential part of it. Don't just think, oh, I'm going to pray the prayer and walk away, but also pray and then listen. Because God does sometimes give directions. Not every day. But God can redirect his servants to where he wants them to be at work. One of the pastors who influenced PBJ, his name is Dave Ferguson, he tells the story of his friend, Louis. And Louis wakes up every morning and he prays a prayer similar to the one I'm going to ask you to pray at the end of the sermon. And he just prays, Lord, show me someone to love today. Well, he prays that prayer and then one day he's at the mall and he's sitting out there in front of a store and he sees this guy and he has this strong impression in his mind Go tell that person God loves him. And Louis does what most of us do. Shrugs it off and says, that's kind of weird. Goes into another store. So Louis goes into the next store down the, down the mall hall. Comes out and guess what? That guy's sitting in front of that store now. And so Louis's thinking, oh my goodness, this is really weird. So probably more out of a desire to get rid of that kind of weird feeling. He walks up to the guy and says, all right, this might be kind of weird. But I'm having this strong feeling I'm supposed to tell you God loves you. There it is. Got it off my chest. All right. And the guy says, really? He says, you know, today I prayed a prayer asking God, if you're real, show me. You're the third person to come up and tell me God loves me. You know, I don't know what God's up to sometimes. 
He works in mysterious ways, but you know what? We have to listen and then follow through on those. And just like Peter getting redirected, God can redirect us when we listen, when we give him space to speak into our life. He can, in fact, tell us where to show love in our world. So we see that here with Peter. He's being redirected. We also see it in Paul as you read his letters. Paul also has a heart of prayer. In the central section of of Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul's wrestling with the fact that a lot of his Jewish brethren have not come and received Christ. And he's wrestling with why, why is that? And he's working out some theological reasons that in the middle of it, in 10 verse 1, he says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This might seem like a little pious insertion there, but I think it's actually Paul's heart. That while he's working his stuff out theologically in in an abstract way, he's also praying, God, I want to see my fellow Jews come to Christ. He's praying that. That's his heart. He later says he's willing to actually be accursed for their sake. That's how genuine his desire for them is. Not only does Paul pray these kinds of prayers. He also invites them for himself from his followers. So here's Colossians chapter 2. I'm sorry, actually, this is chapter 4. I I messed this up on the slides. This is all my wrongdoing. So this is chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. Here's what Paul says to the Colossians. He says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. So here's the prayer request. Pray also for us, that God may open a door to us for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now what's very interesting in this is that Paul happens to let it slip that he's in prison. So the end of verse 3, he says, on account of which I'm in chains. Now thinking about this, most of us, if we were in a situation, be like, hey, Pray for my release right now. Like, this is, this is horrible. But Paul actually prays for something else. He says, pray for an open door for the word. If you live on mission, it doesn't matter where you are. You can be in prison. You can be in our world where the Delta variant makes our world feel a lot like 2020 again. It doesn't matter because God always gives opportunities to share his love with those, those around us. If we live with this kind of a mindset, then the prayer isn't just, hey, God, extract me from the situation. I want to get out of this hot spot. But God, what's my task here? What do you have for me? How do I love? How am I a witness now? And that's what Paul's asking for. Paul's saying, give us an open door. Pray for an open door. But he also says this. In, verse, in, in the verse 2 there, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. So it's one thing to pray, but being watchful has this anticipation of expectation that something's going to happen. And what I've seen by people, the people who've been piloting and experimenting with PBJ thus far, is that it builds in us this anticipation that God's going to do something. So when you see the UPS guy in front of your house like Amber did, oh, here's an opportunity. It transforms those crisis moments into opportunities. So instead of being in prison, it's now, well, maybe the prison guard needs to hear about Jesus. Maybe God has me here to talk to the other prisoners. Well, opportunities start to open up, and that watchfulness begins to give us eyes to see what God's actually doing in the world. 
And then Paul says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So we want to be watchful for what God's doing. And then when he reveals how he's working, thank God for it. One of the things that we want to encourage is people telling stories. There's one way we thank and one way we make it known that God's at work is we tell the stories. Now we're going to encourage our care groups to at least spend some time once a month letting people share some stories. What's God been doing? How have they seen God reveal himself in their world? Now some of you are going to think if you tell a story, it's bragging. And what I've, what I've heard from people is that, well, if I tell my story, it makes it all about me. And so people actually want to keep their stories to themselves. I'm going to encourage you to do it with thanksgiving. Tell your story with thanksgiving and praising God. Here's, here's what he just did. What happens, it ends up inspiring others. And they begin to wonder, well, if God's at work in your life, I want to pay attention to what he's doing in my life. So it encourages watchfulness all the way around. And so don't be afraid to tell your story. If you're feeling like you're, you're bragging, tell it with thanksgiving. This is what God's doing. Here's how I saw him reveal his work in my life. So we've seen the apostles also live into this life of prayer. We've seen Paul ask for it. We've seen the early apostles, the 12, devote themselves to prayer. And so we've seen both Jesus and the early apostles live this vibrant life of missional prayer of bringing these critical moments to the Father, asking for the direction that they needed. Some of you right now are like, yeah, let's do this. I'm on board. Some of you might be a little bit more cautious right now. might say, you know what? I've got some hesitation here. And you might have some objections. And here's one of them. You might have an objection that says, you know what? I've tried this kind of stuff, and it didn't work. I've tried to pray for people to come to Christ, and you know what? I haven't seen change. In a room this size, I'm pretty sure we've got some, everyone's got somebody that they've been praying for for a long time and not seen much movement. Some of you have been praying for kids, spouses, relatives, friends, years, and decades. And as the time wears on, sometimes the energy begins to lapse. We say, you know what, does God even care? Does God even listen to prayers that he would be at work in this world, calling people to himself? What do we do when we're feeling frustrated, when we're feeling like, ah, I'm not sure. Maybe God does leave us out on the battlefield saying, fight your own battles. Let me say a couple things to this. The first is this. Think of prayer more as a request to a friend than a genie who pops out of a bottle with three wishes. God is not obligated to answer our prayers in the ways we see fit. We don't always get answers back, sometimes we do, about why he's chosen not to give that particular request the answer we wanted. So God is under no obligation to give us the thing for which we ask. And it's like a good friend. If you ask a good friend out for lunch and then they just say no on a text, you can infer a lot of different things. Maybe they don't like you anymore. Maybe they're just busy. And they keep saying no, the, the, the more we tend to color that narrative with, well, I mean, they must really not like us now. So we begin to infer a lot of things about the other person. Prayer is a request to another person. And what it has to admit, and just like any other request to a friend has to admit, is that that person also has a will. They have a choice. 
And when we make that request, we're opening ourselves up for rejection, for a no. And psychologists have observed that humans feel that sting of rejection so powerfully that most of us don't ask for help as much as we should. Because we're actually more afraid of rejection than of the joy of them saying yes. And so we anticipate rejection in our requests. And I believe that also transfers over into our prayer life. If my friends, I'm scared of them saying no, I'm also scared that God might actually keep saying no to the request I've been carrying for years. And it's very easy as that sting is felt to say, you know what, I'm just going to stop because I don't want to feel the pain anymore. And so if, if you're in this category today, if you're wrestling with, does God really care about my prayer? I'm going to invite you to do a project this afternoon. So it could be during halftime. It could be some other time. But take some time. Here's, here's the questions I want you to ask yourself in prayer. And you might have to write this down. First, ask this question. And looking over the course of your entire life, how has God answered your prayers the way you wanted? How often have the one random moments like, hey, I want to see Ann Vaskamp, and boom, she happens to be in that 50-foot section that you were going to be in. Do you have a story like that? How, how many of those occurrences have happened in your life? That's question number one. Number two is how many times has there been an outright rejection of your request? How many actual no's have you received from God? And then number three is this. Are you letting those rejections, those no's, have an outsized influence on your perspective of prayer. I'm not asking you to deny the pain of rejection or of processing that no. It's there. What I invite you to do is to acknowledge it, to feel it, to grieve it. And then ask God, Lord, give me energy to come back and make the request again. Can I keep praying that prayer to you? We will experience no's. The question is whether we come back, as Paul asked us to, to be watchful when it, with thanksgiving. Will we come back to look to see what is God doing in this moment, even as he says no to the thing I cherish the most? And so if you fall into this category today and you say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm not sure prayer works in the way I want it to, I invite you to try this experiment with PBJ as, as kind of a, a test case scenario. I invite you to start praying it with us and then just watch and see what God does. Does he do things that say, yep, I'm here, I hear you? And begin to learn, begin to see what he's at work doing. So that's objection number one, that we haven't seen it work. And my invitation is basically Try and experiment with us and to see if he still hears your prayers. The objection number two is what I'm going to call the Reformed objection. And the Reformed objection really says, well, we're in a Presbyterian church and we believe God's sovereign over salvation. Therefore, what kind of role does my prayer actually have? If God chooses who's going to receive him in eternity past... How can my prayers in a temporal setting affect that change? It's an important question. It's a, it's a great question. And I'll sum it up by saying there was, there was a young man 
in my college dorm that I remember one time I went down into his room and he was like in a fit. He was just upset. He was throwing stuff across the room. I was like, dude, what's going on? And he said, you know, I used to believe my prayers meant something. He said, now I'm not even sure. And he was frustrated. He'd grown up in an Arminian context where there was more emphasis put on people wooing people to Christ and that the more energy you put in the prayer, the more likely God was to answer it. And our, our Bible college is a bit more Calvinistic and said, you know, God's chosen, God, God's got a plan. And suddenly for him, he just found any desire to pray just eroded, just gone. And I think a lot of us, especially in our Presbyterian world, can feel this of like, yeah, okay, God's done this thing. Can I just sit back? Like if I just am a bump on the law, won't the elect still come to faith? Like why do I need to do anything about it? Why pray? Well, this objection really, really has two parts to it. And I'm going to start with the first part, which is, which is this one. The first question is this. It really goes back to a, a more ancillary question, and that's this. Why should we bother sharing the gospel in the first place? Why do I even need to worry about it if God's already going to bring them to him anyway? I'm going to lean on J.I. Packer to answer some of these questions for us. I, I found his work very helpful. And he's going to actually turn it on its head. Because instead of undermining any desire to share the gospel and the good news about Jesus, he says, actually, this should give you and I all the hope in the world that folks will actually respond to it in a favorable fashion. So here's what he writes. So for those who are thinking, why bother sharing the gospel? He says this, the truth is just the opposite. So far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God and grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless. For it creates the possibility, note this, indeed, the certainty that evangelism will be fruitful. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen. So what he's getting at is this, that if in our human state apart from God, we do not want to get back to God on our own, our natural propensity is away from God, then there's really no hope for anybody ever coming to faith. But if we know God has called out for himself a people for his name, then there are those who do not yet claim Christ that will. We just need to find them. We just need to tell them, God loves you. Christ has died for you. And so rather than making it a futile experience, it's actually a very meaningful thing, and actually it's going to be met with success. That is the important part that I believe the form theology might give the situation. So then what about prayer? Does, does prayer actually change anything? Well, he says this. Prayer, as we have said at the beginning, is a confessing of impotence and need, an acknowledging of helplessness and dependence, and an invoking of the mighty power of God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In evangelism, we are impotent. We depend wholly upon God to make, us, to make our witness effective, Only because he is able to give men new hearts can we hope that sinners will be born again. These facts ought to drive us to prayer. If you've ever sat with somebody and tried to share the gospel, it doesn't matter if you have a good, solid answer to, to answer their question. You realize in that moment that you need more than just an answer. The person's heart needs to change. And that's not something just an idea does. 
That is something the Holy Spirit does. I had this experience this week. I sat with a young gentleman, and he had deep questions. I felt prepared for them. But in the middle of it, I just realized, my answers really don't matter here. He needs a heart change. And until he wants to believe, he's not going to. And I just started praying at that moment because I realized I was in that place where I realized my most compelling arguments are not enough. God has to do a work. And that's where prayer comes in. That's why we pray, because we realize, God, you have to do this. I can't. And so we pray. We pray because we realize God's power needs to be the one that pulls people to himself. Now, you might still be asking, well, does our prayer actually influence this? Here's my answer to that. Scripture, on the other hand, does affirm that God hears our prayers and answers them. So you have this verse here in James chapter 4, verse 2, where it says, You do not have because you do not ask. Now think about that. It suggests that people don't have certain requests because they haven't actually brought them to God. Remember that observation from the psychologist? People don't want to actually make requests because they're afraid of rejection. Well, James is saying some people don't have something from God because they didn't ask for it. Then later in chapter 5, James affirms this, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working or as it's being accomplished. And then he tells a story of Elijah praying for it not to rain for three years, and it doesn't rain. Was that just natural forces having to align with Elijah's prayer? So how do we put these together? God has a plan from eternity past. God answers prayer. Here's my best guess at this, and it's this. That God's plan unfolds in response to and anticipates the prayers of his people. This is not just a blind plan from eternity past, just out there. It's not just a fatalistic response or a world that we just kind of live in and, and we're a simulated reality. But it engages it, hears our prayers, and God has responded in kind. To put this maybe a bit more simply, here are the words from Archbishop William Temple. He says this, When I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. Now, we might want to say, well, if you change it to providences, uh, okay, fine. But here's what I notice. When we give ourselves the prayer, guess what? The things we're praying for often happen. Not all the time. I do get no's. We all get no's. But we start seeing our prayers lining up with the things God gives us, and it's like, oh. And when I languish in prayer, I usually don't have that connection. And so my experience and then my Observations from Scripture suggest that God's plan that we're living into anticipates our requests and responds to them. So we've seen a couple different things today. We have seen that Jesus and the early apostles lived missionally, and they prayed missionally. And God brought them opportunities. God brought them great growth. We've also seen that there are some objections that we might have and might be dealing with today. I don't think that they're credible enough and substantial enough to keep us from praying missionally. So today I'm going to invite you into the essence of what the P of PBJ stands for, and that is praying missionally. It's to pray and ask God for opportunities to be his witness, to be his advocate, to be his light in our world. So here's 
how I'm going to do it with you. I'm going to walk you down through it. It's actually in your bulletin, so you can take it home and look at it. I'm going to give you two options of, of prayers that I want you to start praying. I want you to start praying these every day. If you get five out of seven days, great. If you get three out of seven days, great. Intend to pray this prayer. And here's, here's one option. You can ask this question. Say, Lord, with whom should I share your love and whom should I bless today? Ten-second prayer. Very simple. That's one option. That's option number one. Option number two, maybe you want to focus on a particular person. And sometimes I find these start bleeding together. Once I start having someone I'm blessing, I might start praying for them once I hear, oh, they have a lot of needs. Or I'm going to start praying for that person. So option two is, Lord, please be at work in blank. You fill in that person's name. Please be at work in their heart and call him or her to faith in Christ. I'm asking you to pray one of these two every morning. That's step one, is to pray this one time a day. Step two is then stop and listen. So just like Peter prayed on the rooftop, and then God gave him a vision for the next stage of of his ministry, just listen. What's going to happen is sometimes in that moment, God might bring someone to mind. Sometimes they'll just be silent. And you might think, well, that's kind of weird. It's okay. Go about your day. What will happen, though, is as you start praying this, Sometimes, later in the day, you're going to actually be faced with a situation. You're going to be like, oh, this is that moment. So sometimes in the morning, God will say, boom, here's your opportunity. Other times, it's going to be the moment when your toddler's melting down in front of your neighbors and like throwing a tantrum on the ground. You're going to be like, oh, Lord, I've been praying for opportunities to bless. Um, what do I do now? Or when your, your friend unloads on you as you're going off to the next appointment, and you're like, oh, what do I do? Do I, do I stay with this person? Do I cancel the next appointment? Lord, how do I care for my friend right now? What you're going to notice is that God's going to start using that prayer, say, this is the moment. And I invite you just to be obedient in that moment. Whatever God has asked you to do, do it. Now, we're kicking this off today. I'm going to give you a, a, a foreshadowing. In the future, we're going to come back to talk about tangible ways to be blessing people. That's going to come in later November, early December. Right now, I'm calling you just to pray and just see what happens. Because if we don't start here, good actions not mapped onto what God wants us to do is going to be good actions, but not aligned perhaps with the mission that he's called us to live out. So pray for step two, and then, as Paul said in Colossians chapter four, watch and see what God does. So right now I just want you to be observing. Pray this prayer once a day. You might want to write it in a journal, what you see God doing. When you give yourself to this, you start having eyes to see opportunities that you didn't see before. Recently, I was having an email exchange with somebody over some professional things, and this person started writing me all kinds of what I call TMI. It was too much information. He started talking to me about, I was in the hospital last night, or I'm on these drugs, and I was like, I don't care. Like, I, just, I want you to get this thing done for me. And I, I was slightly annoyed. And then it hit me, oh, right, I'm praying this prayer asking God for opportunities. Here's a guy frustrated by how his work is being sabotaged by his health. Can I care for him? It was just over email, but it, it shaped my mind. And what happens is, beginning to pray, pray this way, God starts showing you where the crisis moments, just like Paul's in prison, become opportunity moments for you to bless and be the light of life in our world.
And so I'm going to invite you right now to actually just do this. We're going to start off, and I'm going to invite you just to do step number one. You're going to pray it. Then we're going to sit in silence, and Brooke's going to play, play over us, correct? You're going, to play the, uh, you're going to play under us. Okay. He's going to play under us. And just listen. If God brings you somebody to mind, great. If not, be present with that. So let's go ahead and, and close your eyes and pray and begin with step number one. Choose one of those missional ways to pray. Once you've prayed that, go ahead and sit in silence and just listen. Lord, we ask that you would hear the prayers in this room that are being offered. I pray you'd meet with each one, the ones that are excited, the ones that are curious, the skeptical. Lord, wherever we are today, be present with us. I pray you'd meet each prayer, and Lord, I pray that we would have eyes to see the mission that you've laid out for us. Direct us now that we would be your hands and feet. In Jesus' name, amen.